If you don't have a Bible, you can use a, use a Blue Pew Bible and find Joel 1 on page 760. If you have your own Bible, do not feel ashamed to look in the table of contents to find Joel and not just play the odds of flipping the pages and hope you land on it. Joel will be a hard one to find. But we're beginning a new sermon series, and this morning we're just going to take a brief look at the opening verses Uh, But we plan over the next six weeks to go verse by verse through this entire book of the Bible. It is a short book. It is an Old Testament prophetic book. Again, kids, I know you're with us in the service this morning. Um, uh, Meg and I were talking, and she said that you will be learning more about prophets in the coming weeks. And so consider this a little sneak preview of kids' worship uh, to come. But uh, before we dive into chapter 1, I just want to share a couple reasons why we're going through Joel. Um, first is, is a very practical approach to our preaching ministry is that um, with our predominant rhythm going through books of the Bible verse by verse, we want a balanced diet. We want a balanced diet of Old Testament and New Testament. We want a balanced diet of genre and length. And there are some books like the letter uh, to the Galatians in the New Testament that we took six months to go through from January to June earlier this year. And now we're going to an Old Testament prophetic book that we're going to, again, just take six weeks to go through. But we hope over the long term at Grace Church, over a period of years, that we will always teach the whole counsel of God and that we will preach Christ crucified from every nook and cranny of this inspired word. Um, Charles Spurgeon uh, once said that no matter where you are in England, there's always a road that will take you to London. And in the same way, no matter what page you're on in Scripture, there's always a road that's going to lead you to Christ. And for six weeks, we get to travel the road from Joel to Christ crucified. Um, But beyond that, why Joel? Um, I'll be perfectly honest with you. Uh, Part of me is I've never done a deep study on Joel. Uh, I can't offhand recount hearing a sermon on the book of Joel before this summer. And the majority of people in the church are probably in that same boat. And and yet Joel is stunning in that it condenses the whole biblical storyline into three chapters. It reaches back to the promises and the warnings of the Old Covenant towards the beginning of the Bible. And then it stretches forward to a dominant theme of the day of the Lord in the last days. And it does all of that again in three chapters. And there are these other major themes that we're going to see in our time, like the sovereignty of God and the presence of God and the need for repentance and the outpouring of the Spirit on the people of God and the everlasting covenant of God's promises, all in three chapters. And so at the beginning, my acknowledge and hope is that while the vast majority are going to hear us go through Joel and might not be super pumped about it at the beginning, My hope is that God surprises us starting this morning. Because wouldn't it be so like God to use a series in a flyover book of the Bible to awaken you to his promises and maybe even change your life? Wouldn't that be so like him? So, let's go. Joel 1, verse 1. I'm going to read literally one verse and stop and then tell you why. The word of the Lord came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. All right, stop. And you said, I thought this was going to be brief this morning, and it will. We'll get there. But here's where I want to stop. Uh, Verse 1 is everything we know about Joel in the entire book and in the entire Bible. You know it all right now. 
You know his name is Joel. You know the name of his daddy. And you know nothing else. There's no clear consensus, consensus on even when Joel was written. Uh, unlike other prophetic books, there's no king mentioned to locate where in Israel's history this took place. We don't know which prophets were his contemporaries. We don't know what role or position he had within Israel. There are educated guesses we can make, as we will see, but we're not told because Joel doesn't write himself into this story or into this book. Um, if I had to venture a guess, an educated guess, as to when Joel was written, I would agree with the most recent consensus in commentaries that it was after Israel returned from exile in Babylon. There was about 40,000 Jews that returned to Jerusalem from captivity to rebuild the temple under the oversight of Ezra and Zerubbabel, and then to rebuild the city walls under the leadership of Nehemiah. And that could be why there's no king mentioned, because there's no, uh, there's no kings at that time in Israel's history. Uh, there's no direct message to Judah or a listing of sins, and, a, and there's a real focus on the temple, which at that time of the return to Jerusalem, the temple was the center of community life. So, again, that's an educated guess that could help, but we're not told that. And the message that we're going to see over the next six weeks is not contingent on knowing that. So what do we know from Joel 1, verse 1? We know that the word of the Lord came to a man named Joel, and he proclaimed it. And it's a good reminder for us as we begin that what matters most is always the message, not the messenger. The hope is that we will walk away thinking about God and his faithfulness, not Joel and his giftedness. And again, just an application for us, whether this is your church or you go to another church, when you hear a sermon, are you leaving the church primarily thinking about the pastor who preached it or the passage that was preached? Let it be that when we walk out, we are grateful for the messenger, but we are stirred most of all for the God of the message. All right, now let's go. Joel chapter 1, verses 2 to 12. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children, and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed, the ground mourns. Because the grain is destroyed, the wine dries up, the oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley. Because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes. Pomegranate, palm, and apple, all the trees of the field are dried up, 
and gladness dries up from the children of man. Some of you might be thinking right now, I think I know why I haven't heard many sermons out of the book of Joel. It's not exactly the kind of feel-good passage that make for an inspiring message. But Joel is a book that big picture you could frame this way. The first half speaks of present distress, and the second half describes future deliverance. So the first half, beginning this morning, will provide a framework for how to address distress in our lives. How to address distress in our lives. Starting with number one, a call to listen. The first words that come out of Joel's proverbial mouth are, hear this. He begins by building suspense and grabbing the attention of those he's writing to. Hear this, you elders. Hear this, all you inhabitants of the land. Uh, Some translations say, listen to this. And as we know, we do this in daily communication, don't we? When someone says something to you, hey, listen to this. Doesn't that indicate that what they're about to say is significant? Like it should, right? Like if someone said, hey, listen to this. I had cereal this morning for breakfast. You'd be like, no, no, no. Like that breaks the rules of unwritten communication. Like you can't build it up like that and then did not tell me something significant. I read this past week that the command to listen occurs 1,500 times in the Bible. Listen. Hear this. And the most common complaint in the Bible is about people who will not listen. And all the parents said, amen. Amen. But the reason why he specifically addresses elders, meaning those who have been around the longest, is because what he's about to say is something that they haven't heard or experienced in their lifetime. Hear this. The suspense continues to rise in verse 3. He says, what happened is something you're going to tell your children about. And you know what? They're going to tell their children. And they're going to tell their children. What I'm about to say is going to live on in your family for generations. Listen to this. I think about even the last hundred years in our country, uh, you can ask yourselves, what, what, what are the events that have taken place where people know exactly where they were and what they were doing when they heard Um, And it's often historic, tragic events that we remember most clearly. Uh, I remember talking to my grandparents and and previous generations about where they were on December 7th, 1941, when Pearl Harbor was attacked. Uh, My dad told me that he was walking home from elementary school on November 22nd, 1963, when he heard that JFK was assassinated. I remember being in school when my art teacher, Mr. Faraday, told us that two planes crashed into the Twin Towers on September 11th. I remember March 11th, 2020, sitting on the couch after Rochelle and I put all the kids in bed, and we turned on a nationally televised NBA game. Rochelle wanted to watch it. I was like, all right, whatever, I'll watch with you. (laughs) It's not true. But I remember seeing and hearing that that game did not start because Rudy Gobert of the Utah Jazz tested positive for COVID-19. 
And in the span of a couple hours, all major sports stopped, and the president came on and gave a somber address. I remember the next day writing an email to the church saying that we actually can't gather this upcoming Sunday. What has happened, Joel says, is going to live on amongst generations. You're going to tell your children about it, and they're going to tell their children. This is a call to listen. And then number two, a call to look. A call to look. Beginning in verse 4, Joel recounts a historic calamity that has hit their land. It is an invasion of locusts that has decimated the land. And he provides a poetic and vivid description in four waves. With the cutting locusts left, the swarming locusts has eaten with the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And with the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Uh, there's various interpretations of what Joel is doing here. Some think that he is talking about the different life stages of a locust, that there's four different life stages. But what I think he is doing is describing the fact that this was wave after wave after wave of attack. Wave after wave of destruction that you can't even imagine either in succession right after another, or possibly an indication that this represents four straight years of devastation. The locust is uh, two to three inches long. I, I don't know if they're family members to the grasshopper or if it's a different name. I probably should have researched that more, but kind of think that kind of size in your head. And they come in sudden and vast swarms, and they are devastating to the land. They leave Nothing behind. Today, locusts are not as big of a threat as they once were, and certainly as they were in the Middle East thousands of years ago, due to innovation and chemicals that get sprayed. Um, in 1949, an organization called the International Convention for the Permanent Control of Outbreak Areas of Locusts was founded. I know you knew that. I'm just reminding you. The International Convention for the Permanent Control of Outbreak Areas of Locusts. But outbreaks still happen. In fact, I don't know if you remember this, Scott and Barb, but uh, I'm sure you remember that in 2020, as you were sending us updates about COVID and how COVID had just begun to reach Kenya, included in those communications were also updates and urgent prayer requests for the spread of locusts that were coming from Somalia into Kenya devastating the land. Uh, desert locusts have often been called the world's most devastating pest, and for good reason. I'm reading off a website from that, uh, the link that they had shared. Uh, swarms form when locust numbers increase and they become crowded. This causes a switch from a relatively harmless, solitary phase to a gregarious, sociable phase. In this phase, the insects are able to multiply 20-fold in three months and reach densities of 80 million per square kilometer. Each can consume two grams of vegetation every single day. Each locust can consume two grams of vegetation every day. Combined, a swarm of 80 million can consume food equivalent to that that is eaten by 35,000 people a day. Once they begin, another swarm is indeed likely, and it could be devastating, and a surge would put between 5 million and 25 million people at risk for acute food shortages in East Africa. 
a further 25 million people will face acute food insecurity. This was all from the updates in 2020. This is scorched earth. Nothing remains untouched. And this vivid description indicates Joel's familiarity with agriculture, uh, that they laid waste my vine, they splintered my fig tree, they stripped off bark, the branches were made white. Vivid descriptions. I think it's clear that Joel is speaking of a real historical event that took place in Israel. And we learn vitally that the word of the Lord speaks into times of distress. The word of the Lord speaks into times of distress. It is active in times of historic tragedy. He is God and he is not silent. And so we need Joel, a flyover book in the middle of your Bible, a short book, because we are faced with the question that verse 12 has given us. What do you do when the gladness dries up in you? What a phrase. What do you do when disaster strikes? What do we do in times of communal disaster? When there's waves of struggle and waves of war and rumors of wars, times of natural disaster, what do we do when an invisible virus moves across the world like a swarm of locusts, leaving destruction in its path? What do you do when the gladness dries up in you? And that leads to the final point this morning as we just get started in Joel a call to lament. Joel 1, verses 1 through 12, is a call to lament. And he answers the question, what do you do when the gladness dries up in you in first making this call before anything else? Lament. Uh, Biblical lament is, in its kind of simplest definition, can be summed up this way. A prayer in pain that leads to trust. What is biblical lament? It is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. And it's a prayer everyone's going to need sooner or later. In verses 5 through 12, we don't have time to go through it all individually, but he addresses no less than three groups of people and calls them all to lament. Starting with verse 5, the drunkards. We'll come back to that. Verse 9, priests or ministers. Verse 10, farmers, or as he says, the tillers of the soil. But this is all in context with verse 1, when he addresses the elders first. To the elders. He starts with the leaders. You know why? Because true leaders ought to be the first ones to wake up, but are all too often the last. Because the leaders and the ones who are in power don't want to change their position of power. So it starts with the elders. Wake up. But the call here to the drunkards in verse 5, it's interesting for a few reasons. But for one, he does not explicitly condemn them, which is not to say he condones their behavior. But he calls out the fact that the drunkards lack awareness of what is happening. 
When you are drunk, you're in an emotional slumber. You're not aware of your surroundings in the way you should be. And so he calls them to wake up and see what is happening. Call them to look. And he says, drunkards, come on, you're going to be the first ones to suffer here. You're going to be the first one because they stripped the vine of the grapes you need to make your wine and get drunk. You're going to feel this first. Wake up. And then he goes to priests and farmers. And the common denominator in it all is this angst that Joel has that Israel is asleep. They have failed to listen. They have failed to look. And therefore, they have failed to lament. Because you cannot lament without first paying attention and hearing and seeing the state of things. This invasion is so disruptive. You would kind of think, like, how could you not notice it? How could you not react to it? And yet, it appears they are continuing to live as normal, like nothing happened. So wake up and lament, because without lament, you will not turn to God. You will continue living as if nothing happened. And so as we turn from this text, this brief exposition, and now we put the mirror on ourselves and we examine ourselves, can I ask, why does it seem at times that we know what it means to turn to God in gratitude in times of blessing. But we struggle to turn to God and lament for times of pain. If we took an honest reflection on much of Christian culture and even church culture, again, I'm speaking here with a broad brush, broad brush but including myself in this, it seems that Christian culture seeks to do everything we can to rush to solving problems and fixing brokenness rather than lamenting brokenness. That maybe if we just don't pay attention to it, we don't give it the oxygen, it won't be that bad, and we rush past it. We will see as this book goes on that the invasion of locusts, which I do think was a historical event in Israel, I don't think this is just a metaphor, but it will be then used by Joel to speak of a more significant event that he will call his people to awaken to, and that is the day of the Lord. And we'll get there in the coming weeks, but there's something for us here. Why is lament the initial call to those who are in an emotional state where the gladness is dried up, when their heart is stripped like a piece of bark, emotionally numb to everything happening around them? Here's what I want you to take away from this morning. One mark of evidence that we are awakened to the realities of God is that we lament the realities of a fallen world. One of the pieces of evidence that you are awakened to the realities of God is that you lament the realities of a fallen world. That we cannot endure life in a fallen world by avoiding lament. We endure it by the practice of lament. And this would be a paradigm shift for many of us. That your soul was created to glorify God. And lamenting to him in pain is as much of a God-glorifying act as praising him in blessing. 
In Luke chapter 19, we read of Jesus' triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. It took place on a day that we celebrate as Palm Sunday, the first day of Holy Week where Jesus would eventually die and rise again. And all four Gospels record the cheering and the chanting that took place as he entered into the city. Hosanna! Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. But Luke, do you remember what Luke did? He's the only one who recorded what Jesus did as he drew near to the city. Luke 19, 41 to 42 will be up on the screen. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that would make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Why did Jesus weep when everyone else was cheering? Why did he weep when he saw Jerusalem? Jesus knew what he was sent for. He knew that God's perfect plan was in effect and that what would happen that week would bring deliverance for all who believe in him. So why did he cry? He wept because the reality of a fallen world where death occurs, where rejection of truth happens, where people deny his glory for their own sake and bringing about judgment upon themselves makes him weep. It's against God's design. Jesus wept because the city was asleep. Like drunkards whose vines are being laid bare by locusts, they didn't realize what was coming. And so he turns to the Father in pain that leads to trust to continue on the path that the Father has laid out before him. Biblical lament is praying in pain in a way that leads to trust. And we'll see part two of that next week. But we leave with this. That when we create space to lament in our lives, we are able to, by the spirit within us, to move from asking what is wrong to what is true. Spirit-empowered lament empowers you to go from asking what is wrong to what is true. And what we find ourselves in a dry season, faced with devastation and the gladness dries up, We hear the call to awaken faith through the willingness to lament. We move to fix our eyes on Jesus, who by his death redeemed us with his steadfast love. Jesus, who because he died, removed the sting of death for us. Jesus, who because he rose up, declared victory over the grave. And so those who place their faith in him shall too rise. And so in him... Even, and especially when the tears are streaming down our faces, we cling to the promise that Paul writes in Philippians 4, that my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word. Uh, Lord, this morning, especially grateful for the passages that we don't think make for inspiring messages. Passages where we tend to overlook because we don't know what to do with them. And yet, Lord, I pray that collectively together we would be brought to a place where we find ourselves asking what is wrong and lamenting the brokenness that we feel and see to moving to what is true and seeing how you have made atonement for 
that brokenness, that you have made a pathway to heal the ruptures of the fall within us. And we cling to that hope, Lord. Whether we are smiling in praise and blessing this morning or we are weeping in lament this morning, we both hold to the same truth, that you will hold us fast and our hope is in you. Let it be true of Grace Church. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.